Welcome to the Like, Bite, and Share podcast, brought to you by Schweiden Sons. Learn the secrets of food and hospitality marketing from some of the best professionals in the food business. Here are your co-hosts, Rev Ciancio from Schweiden Sons and Brad Garoon from BurgerWeekly.com. Hey, Rev. Mr. Brad Garoon, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm good. How are you doing today, Dad? I am a dad. It's true. It's true. I have now a little wiggler in my own house. I'm good. Hear him in the background. Yeah, he's. Uh, it's feeding time. <laughs> oh, are you nursing still? Uh, when I am not, but the missus is. No, I, gross. I was just talking about you. <laughs> no, I, I'm nursing on hamburgers. That's how oh, I'm rolling. I thought that's what you were growing those boobs for. Oh, that was weird. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of hamburgers, have you had any good ones? Dude, I did. I did. I uh, Well, you know, New York Burger Week is next week, as we uh, talked about on the show last week. But uh, I've been going around to the, all the restaurants participating and getting to try these hamburgers, basically, so we can kind of take photos to promote the events, but also to taste the burgers. Uh, and I had one last week at the Ainsworth, which was just like pure stupidity in terms of awesomeness. Um, and it's a burger they created just for our, our, our boozy bourbon burger event. It's the it's one that uh, Steven talked about last week, right? Yes. It's just, it's ridiculous. It's got crispy pancetta. It's got pepper jack cheese. It's got fried shallots. Uh, it's Schweidenson's butcher's blend beef, which is one of my favorites. It's got mayo. It's got bull and barbecue sauce. It's just like a big tangy savory mess. It's, it's awesome. I'm so psyched for the event. That's dope, man. How about you? I'm psyched for your event, too. I'm also psyched for my event at Burger Week. Your but event's yeah, going to be dope. I'm guessing you're asking more about a, a burger that I ate. Sure. I had two I want to talk about real quick. Hit me. I was just in Michigan, and I went to this place called The Grill in Sylvan Lake, which is right next to Kego Harbor, which is right next to – they're both, like, near Pontiac, if that's if that's a landmark for you. they're all met, These are all metro Detroit suburbs. Anyway, The Grill used to be a Ramshorn. And my review of this place will go up on Monday where I'll tell, uh, I'll write a, I'm going to write in the story about how when I was a kid and I went there after baseball games, uh, it's the only place that I would ever see skinheads. So <laughs> that, that was my memory of this place for the longest time. But I went this time and I got, I asked my sister, are the burgers here good? She'd been there before. I went there with her and my nephew. And she said, I don't really like them. Um, they're very, they're very heavily seasoned. I'm like, oh, that's not always bad. It's not always good, but it's not always bad. But to sort of weather that storm, I'm going to get this patty melt that I see on the menu. This looks interesting. And you know what? I was very happy with it. It was uh, it was pretty heavily seasoned, but that combined with the pretty heavily buttered, buttered bread, the American cheese, and the and the onions, I, I got to say, it, it worked. And it was, this place is unassuming. No one's going there for a patty melt. The place was filled with, it was a Sunday, it was a weekend, and it was still very, pretty dead. Uh, mostly elderly people in there. I would recommend that the youths of suburban Detroit check this place out for the patty melt. <laughs> Did you just call it Bill Knapps? Bill Knapps? Man, I'm, that shows the age difference between you and me. Never mind. No, I mean, I know what a Bill Knapps is, but what, why, why did you ask me about it? Because my memory of Bill Knapps is that like that's where my grandparents went to eat. Oh, I thought you were saying that there were skinheads at Bill Knapps. No. <laughs> no. Okay, because there were at Ramshorn. I don't even know if Ramshorn still exists. Anyway, um... But I had a, a great burger in New York City. Also, it was a lamb burger at 12 chairs. They have a hamburger and a lamb burger. I recommend you go for the lamb burger. Uh, it's better. Um, typical situation with the uh, with the, the pickles and the and the feta cheese, and they're they're doing it right. A great sauce, a great uh, aioli. 
Um, and really interesting, they call them home fries, but they're not home fries. They're just kind of kooky, weird fries. And, and um, even though I'm trying to pull back on the fries, these ones were worth it. That sounds delicious. Yeah, speaking of delicious, you know who writes about delicious stuff all the time? I do. Tell the audience. Brad Garoon. But you know who else writes about <laughs> delicious stuff all the time? Nicely done. <laughs> Nick Solaris of Eater. God bless. Uh, we've been trying to get Nick on the show for a while, so I'm pretty excited that uh, we're going to talk to him today. Let's do it. Nick Solaris came onto the meat radar when he launched his now defunct blog, The Beef Aficionado. Since then, he's become a well-known food photographer, uh, writer for Serious Eats, is now the senior editor for Eater New York, uh, as well as host of Eater's The Meat Show, and ate the most expensive steak in the world, a 400-day dry-aged Wagyu. Uh, Despite originally being from the UK, Nick's favorite style of burger originates from New Jersey, and he currently lives in New York City. Nick Solaris, what would make you turn around and walk out of a restaurant? There are a plethora of things that would lead me to do that. Um, I'm not sure what the most obvious one would be, but I think that I think <laughs> that anything that indicated the frozen beef was being served and, and being done so proudly would be one one thing that would certainly uh, cause me to do that. Not that I've ever seen that. Um, however, there are certain places that make the fact that they're serving frozen beef apparent. Um, another thing, I suppose, would be a rank or horrific odor, which I have encountered on occasion. Uh, let's back up a little bit. Nick, what inspired you to start Beef Aficionado? So Beef Aficionado was, I think like many of the early blogs, was primarily a hobby. And the Internet sort of gave us these tools that allowed mere mortals to make their opinions felt about things in a broad sense in the way that really was only reserved for professional writers heretofore to that point. And what I really, what Beef Aficionado was, was literally a diary of, you know, what I was eating at the time. And I launched the blog actually, although it was originally going to be about steaks and high-end food, it ended up being me eating a hamburger a day and blogging about it in what at the time was almost real time. In other words, I was putting up a post a day about eating a hamburger. And this was back in 2007. And the reason that I got into that was actually that I had I had received in the post, because I was still getting mail physically rather than through my inbox on my computer or my telephone, I received a catalog for NYU's continuing education program. And flipping through it, there was something called Hamburger America by George Motes. And it was basically him showing his film and the chef cooking several of the burgers featured in it and him giving a speech. And that's where I met George Motes. And I had already done a website called Beef Aficionado, but at that time I wasn't really into coding. I didn't really know how to code. I still don't. But so that was kind of a, that was, that caused me trials and tribulations. But as a result of meeting George, I became introduced to the to the world of food blogging and to the blogger software and started to be professional on that and start with hamburgers even though really my initial entry into food as an aesthetic and and cultural pursuit was really to was really at the high end steaks prime rib those kind of things so that's how I started my food blog never really planning on being a professional food writer um but what happened was that almost immediately 
I got asked by Serious Eats to review hamburgers for Hamburger Today, which was their professional food blog, which had originated as Adam Kuban's personal food blog. So that was my entry into professional food writing. And as a byproduct of that, we needed to have photographs. So I did something. I picked up a camera which I hadn't shot with in years and started using uh, digital photography as a medium. And that is what really, that was the beginning of my career. And I, I think that I'm sort of suited for the internet age and in that I can write reasonably well, I can take photographs reasonably well. Or what I really think it comes down to is that I take better pictures than most writers and better photographs, I'm sorry, and, and I write better the, than most photographers. So that's sort of the secret of my success. But, you know, what happened is that my career sort of grew along with the industry of food writing and food blogging to the point where I was hired as a full-time writer at Vox Media who had, you know, two years ago purchased Eater from um, Lockhart Steel and the Curb Network, basically bought the whole network. Lockhart Steel is now our editorial director and Eater is one of the verticals of Vox Media, which is a modern new age media company. Nick, what do you think it about what do you think it is about meat that makes it so appealing? Well, I think I think what's most appealing about meat is really primal, and that we are carnivores, or or at least omnivores. Um, clearly, we are designed to eat and digest meat. Uh, if you look at the way our eyes are positioned, if you look at the formation of our teeth, these are all the traits of predators, and that's you know we are the ultimate predator, and we're also the most advanced animal, and because of that, we have been able to farm meat and, you know, basically genetically change animals to our to our aesthetic liking, I mean, to the way that we like them to taste. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, more than, you know, there is, there is a primal aspect to eating meat that, that eating vegetables doesn't really hold, I don't think. And I don't know if that's the fact that there's maybe some bloodlust associated with it or that it's the protein is inherently something that, that gives us that feeling. But there, there is something very visceral about it. And I think that whether we recognize it psychologically or, or whether we recognize it, you know, whether we recognize it consciously or not, there is something about the exchange of life that, that does have meaning and does sort of imbue eating meat with, with more profundity than eating a vegetable, for example. So you get to eat meat for a living. Uh, as you mentioned, write about it, take photos. What's the typical day in the life of, a, of an eater editor? Well, I think that my existence is probably fairly unique even amongst eater editors. Um, although, you know, the eating part of my day is the easy part of the day. It's, you know... <laughs> um, so I usually skip breakfast. And one thing I will say is that, that I am on this peculiar diet where I fast two days a week. And that's what allows me to not be 400 pounds. Because the rest of the week, it, it's true that there is a lot of calories in my day. Um, but really, depending on what I'm working on, that sort of determines what I eat in a given week. Um, apart from the fact that I'm always, you know, part of our responsibility as editors is to go out and try new restaurants and, and eat in as many restaurants as we can. Um, but if I'm working on, say, a new hamburger map, 
which we did recently, you know, I'll probably eat like 10 hamburgers within a two or three week period because the maps that we produce on Eater are not just lists. They are, every hamburger is vetted. If I do a map, I've eaten every hamburger and I'm saying like, this hamburger is worth putting on this map. That doesn't mean that I love every hamburger on there, but I think that, that the hamburgers that are on there reflect a certain value and they reflect the dining scene in New York at this time. Is your Are your two days of fasting, is that doctor approved or is that just something that you put together on your own? No, it, it's not that it's... it's My doctor hasn't approved it because I haven't been to my doctor since I started the diet. Um, I don't think that um, he would necessarily mind. Actually, she would mind. Um, but it is a recognized diet that is sweeping the UK. There was a recent article in the New York Times, and I'm pretty sure you're going to be hearing a lot about it. It's called the 5-2 diet. Not that I'm pushing this, but I, it's how I managed to mitigate the um, torrent of calories associated with my job. Sure. I mean, that makes sense. Um, you mentioned the heat map a second ago. So when you're you're out there, you're researching all these these burgers. First, I, I I checked out that the spring 2016 burger map. It's it's interesting. I haven't heard of a lot of those places. How do you how do you get tipped off to new burgers? Well, a lot of them are rest, and especially you know it's not like we're we're you know the thing about heat maps is they are reflective. And with a burger heat map, it's not just that they're good hamburgers or burgers that you should. That, are, that, that, that speak to the dining scene. They're also, the heat aspect of that is that these are the restaurants that people are talking about, right? And eater, even though the word implies eating, it's also important to note that we're talking about the restaurant experience in total. And eating is a, is a significant part of that, but it's not everything. Service, ambiance, decor, all of these things, the people, you know, the people that you're eating amongst, those all are all part of the of the experience. Um, so that, again, informs the burgers that go on there because, you know, the local diner might have a, a fantastic hamburger, and that may be covered in many maps that I will do and many features that I'll do, like Joe Jr.'s is my favorite cheeseburger. But that really wouldn't be on a heat map because a heat map is about restaurant dining in New York at this moment. Now, it doesn't mean that all of those burgers are highbrow, we have the Hard Time Sunday Burger, which is sold out of a food truck primarily, but now is in a stand in a food court. They're both very good burgers, and I have you to credit for leading me to Joe Jr., and I think I'm a little surprised despite you saying that, me saying that, Moat saying that, and like 10 other people saying that, why Joe Jr. has never been on a heat map. Well, it's it's certainly been on many maps. It's been on maps that I've produced. Um, but, but the, you know, the notion of a heat map is... Really, it's what it's about the buzz around a place and a diner. A diner, even it's not even a new restaurant, so there's not going to be much buzz about it. Anyway, it's a fantastic have, burger. Yeah, it, it is. A, it, listen, I've I can't I can't be more more vociferous in my love for that. I've I've reviewed it twice. I've done videos about it. I put it on maps. Um, you know, I I love that hamburger dearly. You know, fun story. They don't care. <laughs> We, when George did an episode of Burgerland, I, you did the Jersey episode and I did the New York episode. He called me and he goes, Rev, you're the Burger Sherpa. Find me a burger spot I haven't eaten at in New York City. And I was like, this has got to be the most impossible task George Motes has ever given anyone, which is probably how you felt when he called you about New Jersey. And I was like, what about Joe Jr.? And he goes, that's awesome. Let's do it. And he called and they were like, 
okay, we need a $5,000 shoot fee. And he was like, no, 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 you don't understand. They're like, we don't care. Yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> well, nothing to do with it. I only, I only got to shoot in there because I've been eating there for 12 years or something. And they, you know, they finally, that's actually where I shoot a lot of my videos now. So, um, George will have an in next time he needs to shoot in there. Hopefully that, that show will, that show will come back. I think he just moved on to becoming a fan and left it out of the show. Nick, what what pointers would you give, uh, you know, like a publicist or a restaurant looking to get coverage from Eater or to get coverage from you or something like that? Well, I think those are two distinct things. I mean, the things that I write about, even though I am senior editor at Eater, and of course my purview is fairly large in scope, I tend to focus being the professional carnivore and host of the meat show. I focus on burgers and steak and barbecue a lot. So, you know, one thing that I couldn't emphasize strong, you know, broadly speaking to all publicists, know your audience, okay? Knowing who I am, don't send me tips about the latest vegan pop-up shop or the veggie burger that's going to supplant beef because, you know what, I'm never going to write about those things. And you're just filling up my inbox. We probably get, as eater editors, two to three hundred emails a day through the tip line and through direct contact from publicists. So, you know, the other thing is know your, it's know your audience. If you look through Eater, you will never ever find an instance of us covering a food day, whether it's guacamole day, taco day, cheeseburger day, short rib day, empanada day, pizza day. We don't do that. So don't send me an email about any kind of food date because you, it, it, all it does is sort of aggravate us and makes us question the validity of anything that will come from that PR department. Given that you're getting so many emails in, so many tips, and then I'm sure just the fact that you're so deeply ingrained in this world, you're hearing a lot about restaurants in general. Does a restaurant that's opening that doesn't have PR have any hope of being covered by Eater? Yes, and, and you'll see that it happens all the time. And we have two professional anonymous critics that are scouring the city and they you know you look at Robert system uh, I don't think he for, I don't think that more than four percent of the and I'm being I'm making that statistic up completely but a meaningless number of the places he reviews have publicity departments so and he's reviewing you know when Ryan Sutton will do will review one restaurant in it, it, you know giving it really a thorough treatment, a thousand, fifteen hundred words, you know, Robert will will write as many words about five restaurants or six restaurants in a single feature, which is giving those restaurants much more publicity than they'll ever receive, you know, in any other way. And I think that we really are, you know, with those two guys out there, they, are, they cover an incredible amount of ground. Uh, at the same time, you know, I'm always looking for things to fill in the gaps, whether I'm doing a pizza map or whether I'm doing, you know, a barbecue map. And I think that you'll find that we cover a lot of restaurants that don't have PR departments, but certainly not at the high end because the reality is if you have a high-end restaurant, you have a PR department. You hire a PR team. I mean, that's just that's how you play the game. So, Nick, Nick yeah, I think you kind of just started to allude to this, but, you, you know, you've done everything from a restaurant review to a hot dog tour of New England. You know, how do you decide what editorial treatment to give a subject, and where do you come up with the subjects? Well, I have, I have editors that I answer to. I mean, we have <clears> – I'm senior editor, but we have Greg Morabito, who wrote, who's the editor of Each in New York, and then Amanda Clute is currently on maternity leave, but uh, Helen Rosner is 
is running is editor in chief in her stead. Um, we have feature editors. Uh, Matt Buchanan just came aboard. So the way it works is that I will pitch a story, and you know most of the time it gets picked up. I, I'm I can't actually think of a story that they didn't pick up, but you know generally I'm thinking about. I think about things in two ways. I'm thinking thematically, thinking what is the story that I want to tell, not just in the piece that I'm writing about, but in total. What is the story of the hamburger or the steak or barbecue in New York at this time? And I'm also looking at, I'm looking for underpinnings. So I'm looking not just about what's new, and that's what brings us into the future, but I'm also looking at the historical underpinning of something, whether it's Peter Luger Steakhouse dating back to, you know, the the 19th century or Pearson stick to your ribs you know dating back to the 19 late 1980s who was one of the really the first great barbecue in New York or you know hamburgers when did the black label start when did the first custom blend really hit the market those kind of things you know I like to imagine the process that there's this like this meterati group of people in a tower somewhere that are trying to come up with these instantly clickable eater stories and they come up with this nefarious tour where you and Robert are going to go eat 800 tacos in New Jersey and they let off like a bat signal to call the two of you and you come rushing in and that's how the editorial process is. So Nick, please please don't ruin that for me. Well, I'm not going to ruin it for you. <laughs> that, that's, that is how it works in my mind. But anyway... Nick, what's, what's the most common mistake people make when pitching you? Like, what's the most egregious mistake someone can make? You know, in other words, what's, it like, the instant deal-breaker when it comes to coverage? Well, again, it's not, it's not that we accept pitches for coverage. Um, we, we know what interests us as writers and editors, and we know what interests our readers as writers and editors. So, you know... We don't want to see the... I mean, if you're asking me how should you get coverage, give us an exclusive. Don't give us the same sales pitch that you give every other publication. You know, if you... if you, That's, you know, and, you know, we always, we always feel that the value that ETA brings is not just that we have professional reviewers and, you know, it's that we... When we cover a restaurant, we do an ETA inside. That means I'll go in there and I'll shoot the space. And it's, you know, these are sort of architectural, you know quality photographs of the space in all of its glory. We'll do menu previews. We'll do interviews. We have a whole video team. You know, the, the meat show is just one aspect of that. There is, you know, we do all sorts of features. And, you know, that's the value that we bring. But at the same time, you know, giving us a press release that everyone else has gotten is no value. That, that doesn't do anything for us. So, yeah, what, what will get you on eat? Give us some exclusives. Give us an interview about the with the chef before they open. Give us a sneak peek at the, mem at the menu. You know, let us know before the restaurant opens. Give us those kind of things. You mentioned the meat show. We, we actually have, we're big fans, obviously, and we want to ask a, a couple of questions about it. Uh, mainly, you know, the show is, is quite successful in terms of YouTube food shows. You're getting between 20,000 and 200,000 views per episode. What's your relationship like with Eater in, in promoting the videos when they come out? Well, it, the, the Eat, I mean, and that, and honestly, the the YouTube views are, are meaningless compared to what we're doing on Facebook, which is like in the millions. Not to brag, but I'm sure the the Eater would like me to point that out. Um, the look, that's my job. It's not. There's no distinction between. I don't own the Meat Show. Eater owns the Meat Show in the same way they own. The uh, you know what what I write for them. That's that's my job. 
So I promote it. I mean, I do Twitter, I do Facebook, but that's what I do that with all of my all of the stuff that I that I work on with Eater. Is that sort of an unspoken or even maybe a spoken Eater rule that on your personal social media accounts you'll be promoting your content? Uh, it is highly encouraged. I don't know that it's a, it's the, that it's a rule, but you know, I think that uh, look look where where writers, where photographers, where broadcasters. We want our stuff. I don't do this because I don't want people to read it. You know, I I <laughs> I want people to hear my opinion and I want people to see my pictures and watch my videos. So yeah, I promote that as vociferously as as I can. Well, I know I, I want to be on the Meat Show, but we can talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> what is the creative process for your video likes? Is there ever is there ever like pressure to make them more like food porny or appetite appealy? Like what's how's that all work? No, I think that actually there is there is a strong inertia to not do that. Um, we have a an amazing video team. I have a producer. We have a, a creative. We have a, a creative head who, you know, we we sit down and we we discuss subjects. But I have to say that they're, they're very they're very open to my ideas. And you know, thankfully, most of them have paid off so far. So hopefully, they'll continue to be that way. Um, but we have a great team who, you know, they understand how to package what I do. And that's, I think, the secret to my success is not that I can get up and speak, you know, about meat. It's that I have people that edit me and, and narrow my focus down in a, in, a, in a good way. This is interesting that you mentioned that you do, the videos do so much better on Facebook than on YouTube um, because on YouTube there is the option to put advertising uh, over the video to earn revenue, um, but on Facebook there's not. So I wonder. Uh, it seems that the videos are really just a way for Eater to, you know, spread spread content and great content. Um, are you guys putting ad spend behind those videos, or is this all organic? Honestly, I wouldn't know because I do not run. We have a social media team, as you might imagine. Um, that's something I would have to defer to them. I I really don't know. But again, Twitter, Facebook. And Instagram don't generate revenue, but neither does Snapchat. But you know what? Everyone does it because it's the way that we communicate. And yeah, again, I think branding is important. Also, I think it's important to to you know reinf reinforce the brand. And also, I think video is a very good way of sort of imbuing you know putting a face to to Eater, but also you know giving some insight into how how we operate culturally. Given that, I don't maybe this is more the social media teams. Uh, goal, and you can say so if it is, but are there view mandates, hit mandates for for the show, or goals even um, going forward? Yeah, I, you'd have to talk. That That's something I couldn't answer, honestly. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm lucky in that I am allowed to be creative, and of course we worry about, of course we worry about um, traffic. That's That's the goal of any department, but Editorially, we're—I mean—and that's another thing that's amazing about working at Vox is that we are not tied to the advertising and editorial department are completely distinct. This is true journalism in the classic print sense, but moved over to the to the digital age. So there is no crossover between advertising and editorial. That's that seems like it's for the best, creatively speaking, anyway. Nick, do you read press releases? Uh, I, I rarely, I rarely read. 
this is one tip I will say. If you're sending me a press release, if it has steak or hamburger in it, I'm probably going to read it. <laughs> now, if it has steak or hamburger in it and then it turns out to be like something else, it's probably going to annoy me and I'll probably delete your email. But, you know, those are the kind of things I'll respond to because that's what I write about. So that's useful to me. And if I'm putting together a roundup of burgers coming up, yeah, I'd like to know about your hamburger. So, Nick, before we, we get into the, the speed round we've got set up for you, uh, for someone looking to get into being an editor and a writer but really doesn't have any experience, what do you think is a great way for them to get started? You know, that is a very difficult question because I don't know that I would be able to do what I do now if I was starting now. The world has fragmented in a way that, you know, I got into it at the very early stages of food blogging and sort of lived through the golden era which wasn't the most lucrative. We weren't making a ton of money. But there was a real innocence back then, and there was, you know, it was a, a time where you could really sort of make a name for yourself. And I think that that's much harder to do these days. Um, but I think the medium has changed. I think writing is sadly becoming less important. You know, we're seeing people with Snapchat channels and Instagram accounts being paid sort of huge amounts of money for what looks like not doing much work. And, you know, we, we also use those mediums, but it's not the backbone of what we do. But I think that moving forward that, you know, using Facebook, using Snapchat, using YouTube, things that didn't even exist when I started Food Rising, you know, those are probably more reasonable avenues than trying to just get a writing career going. Not that I wouldn't encourage you to do that. I think the writing is you know, the most important thing that I do and the most difficult thing that I do. But breaking through, I think, is much more difficult now. And I think that really the medium for being involved in food is has really shifted. I think it's, uh, it's easy to get a lot of likes, but it's not easy to get a lot of people who will engage. Yeah, and try getting paid for writing about things like food. <laughs> that's, that's the most challenging thing of all. I mean, the, the amount, you know, the... I joke with my friend Adam Platt, the, the restaurant reviewer um, for New York Magazine for many for many years, and I say, you know, you have the, the, the last great job of the 20th century, you know, because jobs like him do not really fall from trees anymore. Now, there's a lot of us being paid to write about food, um, but it's, you know, it, it's on a very different level, and I wonder how, you know, how how sustainable this is in the long term, you know, going, you know, five, ten years down the line. It's okay. Brad and I think people don't read anyway. They just look at pictures and like and move on. So keep doing the show. Well, let me tell you that, you know, at the early days of Serious Eats, we would put a post up that had no image. Nobody would read that post. Putting an image meant that people would then actually read it and digest it. And it's just that photography has become wrapped up in the vernacular of digesting information, you know. That's why you'll never see, you know, we use an image on every post. I mean, that's just the way the Internet works. For sure. But then you have other issues where when you're testing your audience, what Rev's referring to is the other day I posted a, a very delicious-looking photo of a burger with the caption, like this photo if you're a fan of ISIS. <laughs> and comment on this photo to tell me how offended you are about this <laughs> caption. <laughs> And there were some great comments, but there were also like 600 likes on that, right. on that photo. So that's a social media issue more than it is an actual editorial issue. Yes, but but also does 
you know, we do digest information differently. All right, Nick, so we're, we're going to go into a speed round on some questions here first, but I have something that I want to follow up with you about first. Okay. Back in 2013, I asked you, what is the one burger you've always wanted to try but still have not? And your answer was Dyer's in Memphis. Have you since been able to complete that meat mission? I have not, but I'm actually going to be shooting video in Memphis, so that will probably be a video. All right, well, Which I will is probably a good way. To, it's probably good that I waited because it will make for a good meat show episode. Yeah, and I don't, people listening probably don't know what the deal with Dyer's is, and I have to think that one's actually pretty visual. So, Right. And I will still be jealous, so there you go. Well, right, you Nick, may have got it by then too, hopefully. Maybe you should come down. If you want to be uh, on the meat show, here's your chance. Uh, Brad, you want to go to Memphis? I, I actually always want to go to Memphis. Have you? Do you know about Dyer's? Have you heard the Dyer's story? No, I'll, I'll hear it. I, I could wait for the meat show, though. Could, uh, you know we, what? We we'll, we'll, wait, we'll, we'll wait for the meat show. All right, that sounds good. Or, or, or you could go read Moats' book. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nick. So we got we got some speed round questions here. Uh, simple this or that type of stuff. You just answer whatever the first thing comes to mind. All right? Okay. This sounds like uh, I'm being psychoanalyzed. Correct. Maybe maybe a little bit. This is the Rorschach test test of meat through audio channels. All right. Skirt or hanger? Skirt. All chuck or custom blend? <sighs> I mean, I'd have to say, I have to say, all chuck. All right, dry rubbed or wet? In relation to what? Ribs. Uh, dry rub. Sweet or spicy? In rela- in relation to what? Let's say wings. <laughs> uh, wings spicy. All right, beef or pork ribs? Uh, pork ribs. Char grilled or flat grilled? You mean f- uh, for a hamburger? Yes. Flat grilled, flat top. Ketchup or no ketchup? I think we both know the answer to that one. Nice. Right? <laughs> well, that is <laughs> That's an insulting question. Uh, listen, I know once you were asked ketchup or mustard, and you chose ketchup. So. Yeah, that was a. Uh, I, I was that was when I was a spotty teenager, at least in food blogging years. <laughs> classic burger or fancy burger? A uh, classic burger. All right, so we're we're gonna go into the wrap here. We ask everybody on our show the same three questions, and now you are gonna be held to it as well. Okay. Uh, Nick, what was your favorite burger from childhood? My favorite burger from childhood was at a restaurant called The Great American Disaster, which they had several outposts in London. Um, it was apparently investors who also owned part of the Hard Rock Cafe, and it turned out that the whole thing was a tax scam. But the hamburgers they did were iconic in my mind, and they were flame-grilled, which is not my favorite type of hamburger, but these guys got it right. They were crinkle-cut French fries, um, big seeded buns. They had a, they had this triple tray of condiments with ketchup and relish and mustard on it. And it was called the Great American Disaster because they had all newspaper headlines or new, the front pages of all the great disasters like the Hindenburg and the Apollo 13 and all of these calamitous events. And the the thing was sort of a send-up of American culture, but at the same time served fantastic, iconic hamburgers. So usually for our next question, we ask, what's the last great burger you ate? But I'm going to change it up a little bit. We're going to link your new heat map for burgers in New York City and in the show notes. I want to know what's the best burger from that list. My f- Well, the best burger is my favorite hamburger on that list. Yeah, let's say your favorite. Uh, my favorite hamburger on the new heat map list is the double patty classic from April Bloomfield's Salvation Burger. 
What is it that you liked about that burger? That burger sort of fulfills all of the expectations of a fast food double patty stack. It's got the two intensely charred patties, gobs of American cheese, special sauce, um, on a sesame seed bun. That is, it's one of the most fantastic buns. They're made in-house. It's, it's, it's studded with sesame seeds. It's soft. It's pliant. It has all of those traits, but it's done with a chef's touch. So the bread is like perfectly buttered, perfectly, perfectly crisped. The pat is, you know, it's it's an amazing short rib blend. The American cheese is made in house. Everything is done in house. Uh, April is really one of, is a friend of mine, but also I think one of the most accomplished chefs that the city has. And I, I just love that hamburger. I just love hearing you talk about hamburgers. So that was sort of a leading question there. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, what's the one piece of advice you would give to someone looking to get in the food marketing business? Uh, I don't. I have no advice to give somebody in the food marketing business. <laughs> I don't. I don't do food marketing. Um, I would say, once you're in the food marketing business, knowing your audience, I think, is an important thing. And I think targeting, you know, targeting your audience. I don't really write about minimum wage and price hikes. So don't send me emails about that. Send that to Ryan Sutton. He's, you know, he's the data guy. Um, Conversely, don't bother the vegetarians at Eater, whoever they may be, with hamburger news. So, Nick, where can they find more about just you? And by they, I mean our audience. Find more about just you. My Twitter account is probably the easiest way to follow me, and that is at capital N-I-C-K underscore capital S-O-L-A-R-E-S. I love that you uh, emphasize that they have to use capital letters, so I'm going to start doing that now. I don't know if it makes a difference, actually. But. It, it, it doesn't, but we'll say it does for you. Nick, a, a sincere pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much. We had a good time talking some hamburgers and meat with you, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely catch you out there in the Burgerverse soon. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Like, Bite, and Share. We hope you found today's interview insightful. If you didn't get a chance to write down everything, no worries. We take the show notes for you. Go to schweidandsons.com slash podcast to find them. If you enjoy the show, we ask for one favor, and that's please give us a rating in iTunes. That helps us to spread the word to others who might find this valuable like you do. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a future episode featuring helpful tips from other professionals in the food marketing business. Stay hungry.